Blog Talk Radio. family. Thanks for listening and being part of the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. And thank you for joining us for this episode 68 from the Eastern Files. The program is dedicated to memories, stories, and articles appearing in Eastern publications such as Repartee, the official magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, and books by former Eastern employees, historians, that uh, want to continue telling the story of Eastern Airlines. We want to keep the great history of Eastern Airlines for all to share and keep the legacy of this proud airline. Today's From the Eastern Files brings you the early history of our great airline and the aircraft it flew. The readings for this series comes from the book Eastern and Airline and its Aircraft. The author is J.E.B. Davies, and let's start reading this uh, wonderful historical and very colorful pictures of Eastern Airlines in his book. I'll tell you at the end of uh, reading how to get uh, a hold of this uh, book, how to how to order it, and uh, and we'll go from there. Let's hear a, uh, a Eastern commercial. Aviation that took over the Pitcairn operation was an impressive organization. Uh, 
Its driving force was Clement M. Keyes, who had rejuvenated an ailing company. The corporation had been founded on December 6, 1928, as an investment trust. And under Keyes' ambitious drive, it quickly became a holding company for many other enterprises, both in the United States and overseas. Keyes represented the controlling interest of the largest stockholder, the Curtis Wright Corporation. Six months before the Karen deal, North American had purchased the Sperry Gyroscope Company, and shortly after Pitcairn, it acquired Berliner, Joyce, and the Ford Instrument Company. Through an important subsidiary, uh, Intercontinent Aviation, the Keys interest had founded or sponsored by par- partial investment airlines in Cuba, which was the Compania National Cubana de Aviación, and Curtis uh, South America, Peru Airlines, and China Airways Federal. Having bought Pitcairn's airline operation on the 12th of July, 1929, North American moved the executive offices from Philadelphia to New York to the Sperry Building in Brooklyn. Strictly, Pitcairn became a wholly owned subsidiary of New York and Atlantic Seaboard Express. And on January 15, 1930, the name was changed to a more appropriate name, Eastern Air Transport. By this time, in addition to a myriad of other North American acquisitions, which included shareholdings uh, in Douglas Aircraft and United Aircraft and Transport Corporation, it had substantial interest in Western Air Express, Transcontinental and Western Air, and the General Manufacturing Corporation in Baltimore. Eastern was thus part of a nationwide airline system, which at the end of 1930 accounted for upwards of a third of the air transport activity in the country. North American had to upgrade its fleet quickly if it was to carry passengers, which by 1930 had become essential to supplement the mail payments. As a temporary measure, therefore, a few passenger-carrying aircraft were acquired by rental or lease agreement until the new Curtis Condor aircraft were delivered. This makeshift fleet consisted of a couple of Falker or tri-motors and also the uh, Falker tri-motors. Even though the airline business had grown explosively with big business grasping control, the practical arrangements were still almost casual, with crew and trans- and passengers alike able to stroll onto the airfields and approach the aircraft, even with the engines and propellers running. Now, the first Falker went into service. That was an F-10 Falker, according to Davies, was uh, August of 1930 when the first Falker was put into, uh, into passenger carrying. Now, Ford Trimotor, uh, by 1929, the U.S. airlines were sparring for position in implementing changes uh, in the system of airmail payments 
force them to plan with national rather than regional perspectives. Not only were uh, the alliances in the works, the new laws would encourage the use of larger aircraft and revenue from passengers would supplement the mail payment that were liable to decrease. Outstanding among the transport aircraft of the late 1920s was the Ford Trimotor. It was developed from the earlier principles of designer Bill Stout. The all-metal Ford was superior to the metal-framed wooden Falker F-10, and the much-publicized March 1931 Newt Rockne F-10 disaster effectively eliminated Ford's competition. The aircraft quickly became the standard equipment for the aspiring airlines of 1929, deriving much impetus from its selection of transcontinental air transport, or TAT, T-A-T, the Lindbergh line, as it was called, the Lindbergh line. Deliveries were made to Pitcairn Eastern operation in 1929, but they were not used much. Great faith was put on the Curtis Condor, which were bigger and more comfortable, at least in the publicity that was given them. But they were just as noisy as the Fords, and earplugs were necessary. National uh, normal uh, conversation in the cabin was very difficult. Now, the Ford Trimotor was put into operation the 22nd of June. It was delivered to Pitcairn and to uh, uh it put into operation uh, in 1929, and they had four of those, and they had two of the Falker F-10 aircraft. Now we move over uh, to Eastern Air Transport, and we read that partly because Clement Keyes and North American Aviation realized that the inherited uh, Pitcairn route network had considerable potential for passenger carrying, and partly because the demonstration of such ability would favor its bidding for lucrative airmail routes under the pending new legislation being discussed at the highest levels during 1929, Eastern Air Transport began passenger service on August of 19. The first route was from New York uh, and uh, down to Richmond, Virginia. And apparently the great Curtis organization was not at the time able to supply aircraft from its own factories. Thus, for a few months, the mail-carrying Pitcairn mail wings were supplemented by the Falker F-10s and the Ford Trimotors under various leasing agreements. Eastern's passenger network was consolidated in a more respectable fashion on on the 10th of December of 1930, when Curtis Transport Aircraft from its own stable became available. On that date, the 18-seat Condor, 18s, uh, went into service from New York to Washington, where where the travel demand was the greatest, and the seven-seat Kingbird, the Curtis Kingbird, opened the service through to Atlanta. On August 1st, 1931, past January, uh, 
Passenger service was extended from Atlanta down to Miami via Jacksonville with a branch line from Daytona Beach to Tampa and St. Petersburg. On April 1st, a coastal route was added from Richmond for passengers and mail. The Condors replaced the Kingbirds as far as Jacksonville, and on October 23rd, a branch line connected Norfolk with Richmond. Atlanta was connected directly to Savannah in uh, December of that year. At the end of the year, the airline had carried 32,000 passengers. Although its aspirations to be a uh, party to the upcoming transcontinental airmail routes were frustrated by the airline in fighting and the de- infighting and the desires of the Postmaster General Walter Brown. It had other advantages. Not only was it able to operate, uh, but uh, for, for many years exclusively, the vacation-oriented Florida gravy run, as it was called, it made the direct connection with all Latin American-bound traffic at Miami with the United States. Uh, the chosen instrument was Pan American that brought it to the U.S. Uh, <clears throat> Now we turn to the aircraft, a little bit about the Curtis Kingbird and the uh, first one delivered that uh, Eastern Air Transport was to purchase. And the Curtis manufacturer named its aircraft after birds. And this aircraft was named appropriately as one of the family of flycatchers. It is named the King, the Eastern Kingbird, designed by uh, Theodore Wright, the prototype was approved uh, on July 27th, 1929, shortly after North American Aviation had purchased the Pitcairn uh, airline and its mail contracts. And when the industry was moving seriously into the business of carrying passengers, the two engines were located close to the fuselage to avoid yawing. But this resulted in a noisy cabin, uncomfortable for the passengers. The design was quickly improved, but this needed improvements to the tail assembly with twin vertical stabilizers and an extra horizontal tailplane. This Model 3 had six seats and had the right R760 engines for improved performance. Except for the first three, all Kingbirds were built at the Curtis Wright plant at Lambert Field in St. Louis, Missouri. Interestingly, this same tail assembly general design was used on the larger Curtis Condor 18s along with the extra struts and wires. Now, there were a bunch of those. It looks like about 15 of them or so. The first one entered service on July 30th of uh, 1930. And uh, we move on now to passenger service, which uh, Davies writes uh, the story about uh, the in-flight cabin service. And the year was 1929. Uh, It could be termed the transition year for air transport in the United States. But until then, the emphasis was entirely on the carriage of mail. This was a source of three quarters if not more, of the airline's income and the inspired efforts of the Hoover administration's new Postmaster General, Walter F. Brown, 
had not yet taken shape or come into effect. The airlines had to look after their passengers, many of whom were apprehensive of taking to the air. The airlines had to provide stewards rather than like the railroads, rather like the railroads, and in some cases, stewardesses. United Airlines' ancestor, Boeing Air Transport, can rightly claim to have been the first to employ the ladies, but Eastern was not far behind. And indeed, their hostesses, as they were called by the company, were more than nursemaids, as the charming picture uh, that was uh, in their advertisements uh, displayed. They did not serve meals, but Coca-Cola was on the menu. On the southbound New York-Miami flight, lunch was served in Richmond and dinner in Jacksonville, Florida. Northbound, taking off at 5.20 a.m., breakfast was at Jacksonville, and dinner, dinner was at Raleigh, North Carolina. Aircraft were equipped with two-way radios and were multi-motored amenities, which only a few years previously were not available. In addition to the Florida vacationers, a flag stop was sometimes made at Brunswick, Georgia, to drop off hunters, fishermen, and yachtsmen bound for Jekyll Island and Sea Island. And at Atlanta, passengers could enjoy a good southern meal for 75 cents at the Candler Field Restaurant. Until 1933, the T-32 Condors uh, continued to use the Picaran insignia, which was an era with uh, looks like wings and a uh, cabin beneath the era arrow. Uh, next was the Curtis Condor, the 18 model, the Curtis Condor 18, which uh, really was a workhorse for most of the passenger uh, carrying that did before the metal aircraft arrived in the form of the DC-2 and the Lockheed Electra. Uh, the Curtis Condor uh, had seats for 18 people. It uh, was powered by two Curtis Conqueror engines of 1,200 horsepower. Multiply that times two. Uh, the maximum gross to uh, takeoff weight was 17,678 pounds, and it had a maximum range of 500 miles. The length of the aircraft was 58 feet, and it had a wingspan of 92 feet. The travel speed was generally around 118, 120 miles per hour. Well, that's our reading for today's From the Eastern Files, and we hope you enjoyed the series and uh, are enjoying the series. And before we close out, we want to tell you that uh, keeping your Eastern family informed is of the greatest importance to what we do on the radio show. You can join us on Thursdays, and that's every other Thursday when we broadcast from the Eastern Files, which you just heard one. And um, and then on opposite Thursdays, we have the EAL Old Time Radio, which continues to play the music of our Eastern years. We're into the 60s and 70s now, so tune in on March 21st for our next big hits. Monday, March 18th, we present children of the greatest generation we hope you'll join us at 7 p.m on monday march 18th 7 p.m eastern daylight time 
And this is a talk show, so we hope you join us in conversation. You can call in at 213-816-1611. That's 213-816-1611. Do you have a story or a memory you would like to share with our Eastern family? We would certainly like to hear from you and from the Eastern Files, and we'd like to broadcast it during one of our shows, either you doing it yourself live by calling in and, and telling your story, or you can just send it to us and we will broadcast your story on the air. You can send your request to uh, host at EALradioshow.com. That's host at EALradioshow.com. Now, until then, we sign off as we do with each broadcast by saying goodbye, Eastern family, and we love you, Eastern. <laughs>